Let's pray together. Father, for that song to be true in our lives, to find satisfaction, we ask that you would become our ultimate treasure. And we realize how much competition there is for the throne of our hearts. So many things to distract us, to divide us from the very best in yourself. And today we would pray that you would take over the control of our lives and hearts. I thank you for each one here. Thank you for the amazing mission and plan you have for each of our lives. But we also pray for the kind of hearts that will receive it and follow it. Thank you for your people. We pray for the future of ABF. Father, as Bill mentioned earlier, we pray for the next pastor of this church. We pray for a person whose satisfaction will be in Christ. Someone who will lead with faith and courage, integrity, wisdom, love, and strength that is found in you. And for us, thank you for the privilege of seeking you and praying. Make us the kind of church that turns to you and seeks you. And then this morning we would ask that you would bring us to a place of understanding that your work is much more amazing and deeper than we can imagine. Again, I thank you for each one here. I pray now, Holy Spirit, you'd fill me that you'd speak to us according to your great power and plan. Pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. I told Bill Berry after the first service, I like his voice better. The way it is, kind of has that Charlton Heston sound, you know. But, but uh, And also we should hold our hands in sympathy over our hearts for a moment for all of you SC fans and alumni. And because I have the gift of mercy, I'm not going to rub it in and say, you've been smoked three years in a row by Stanford, John. <laughs> so, and again, just to say we appreciate um, your prayer. If, if I say a couple things two or three times in a row this morning, it's because I got up at about 20 and 4. We went to bed at 11.30 last night after the banquet. And, and we know we're here because this is the second time we've been doing this this morning. But... Um, Anyhow, it was a short night sleep, but it's really good to be here. How many here uh, have been in any type of transition recently? Or maybe you're in one right now. Well, I didn't share this in the first service, but I, I, I do want to let you in on a little secret. Life is nothing but a series of transitions. Ready or not, right? <laughs> they just don't happen once. And this morning, we're going to take a look at transitions. And you might say, well, what is one? Well, here's a definition. If you are following along in your outline, you can fill in the blanks here. And then we'll see how do we know if we're in one or not. The definition of a transition is, is the in-between time in a believer's development where God clarifies past lesson and takes a Christ follower from one sphere of his or her personal development to another. Sounds innocuous, sounds simple enough. But we want to look at the uh, dynamics of transition this morning. In order to do that, I want us to turn to a, one of the little jewels of Scripture. And it's found in the very beginning of the Bible. So if you'll turn to the book of Ruth, the uh, sixth book in. You have the pen of seventh book, the, after the book of Judges. In fact... As we're going to see this morning, this book is set in the context of the time of the judges. Do you know anything about the, the period of time when the judges ruled Israel? Well, it says, if you go back and read the book of Judges, that it was known as a time where it says every man, every person did what was right in their own eyes. They were the standards. Does that sound familiar to anyone today? <laughs> That's the exact culture that we work in. Who is God to you? What is right? What is wrong to you? And, as if uh, that's what determines uh, life itself. So in the book of Ruth, we're going to take a look at this little jewel. It's a book that's been highly romanticized over the years, and yet it contains for us a, a story of people who begin in upheaval. Let me set the stage. There is a man named Elimelech who moves with his family. By the way, that's where the song comes from. Lion King, Elimelech, Elimelech. <laughs> from right here. They move to Moab because there's a famine in the land. There's no food. And with it, he takes his wife, Naomi. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And while they're there, it says they marry two Moabitess women. 
One's name is Orpah, and the other is Ruth. Now, we've probably all heard of Ruth. Some of you know that Orpah is actually the way that the TV hosts, that's where she got her name. They just changed two letters around. And it is true. Her parents, was his dad, her dad was a pastor, and she's in a different zone right now. But um, that's where her name comes from. Not that it matters here, but just wanted you to know that. So it says, Elimelech is there, and after a period of time, he dies. Naomi is now a widow in a foreign land. And not long after that, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, die after uh, a period of time, about another 10 years in the land. And all of a sudden, Naomi finds herself as a widow, and so do both of her daughters-in-law. They're widows in this land. And so Naomi finds herself in a real conundrum and decides when she hears the news that back in the land of Israel, God has visited his people again. The famine is over and now there's a great harvest awaiting back in Israel. And so she decides that she's going to return to her homeland because there's nothing left for her in Moab. And so she discovers that as it's time to go, she grabs her two daughters-in-law and she tells them goodbye. And the scriptures indicate, she says, may God show you the same kindness you've shown to my husband, my sons, and may he grant you uh, great reward and great success. So they appear to have all had a, had a loving relationship. And some of you know the story how that um, we're going to see in a moment, they have to make choices as she encourages them to go back to their parents' home there in Moab. There's a principle here that we're going to see that in the time of transition, one of the first things that we need to do is to listen to our losses. You see, when you enter into a transition, how do you know you're in one? We're going to look at that this morning. And um, we're going to see that they have entered into one. In this particular case, it's marked by loss. We're going to look at four stages of a transition that goes really something like this. That's supposed to be a circle. Or maybe it's just a pumpkin <laughs> with this line off a little bit. But they've entered into it. And one of the ways you've, noted, you've entered in, there's, sometimes there's loss. There's a sense of isolation. There's been some upheaval. Sometimes conflict with others. Uh, or negative experiences. And this is a, a time of entrance into um, uh, this transition. Life is not the same. It will never be the same for them. And so they've entered into the negative experience. Now, obviously, they're not only in deep pain, but with, with the sense of loss, you also enter into a time of confusion. And where we begin to say, what is, what is happening here? What's going on? We cannot know for sure what is happening. And Naomi cannot have, so she says to her two daughters, go back because I cannot have more children so you can have future husbands. That makes no sense to a Western audience. Some of you know this is called the law of Leverite marriage. If, if someone died, uh, if, a, if a husband died, then the brother next in line was to marry the widow to, to maintain the family name. That doesn't make sense to us, but it's a whole different culture. And God provided this in the law of Moses, to take care of families, those who are widows, those who had lost loved ones. And so what she's saying is, even if I have more children, I'm not going to. It'd be 20 years before they grow up. It's too late. You're not going to have any children by me. So you have no hope of anyone taking care of you because women, there were no factories, there were no businesses. You didn't go work somewhere. You either had family to take care of you or you were in deep trouble. And so she's saying, go back home. And some of you know the story, how that Orpah did go back home. But Ruth made a decision. Her decision was to stick with her mother-in-law and, and to follow her. And in doing so, uh, what looks very uh, amazing to us is Lu Ruth literally forfeiting, or I should say mortgaging her future to essentially yielding it to care for her mother-in-law. And this is an amazing act of what the Bible calls loyal love. The Hebrew word is hesed. Loyal love here. And so Naomi... His, and, and notice these verses that are well known. You've heard them in a wedding. But Ruth replies in verse 16, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. 
And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing. How many have heard that quoted at a, at a wedding sometime? Those passages, yes. Isn't it amazing because this was a daughter-in-law making that kind of commitment to her mother-in-law. This is not about husband and wife. There's nothing wrong with that kind of application. But the original story is that Ruth is stating her loyalty to her mother-in-law to care for her and to follow her. And Naomi, of course, uh, needs to understand something at this moment she doesn't. She needs to realize that genuine love doesn't end even in pain. Certainly God's love does not end when we're in pain. We might think it does. We might think God has abandoned me. He doesn't know anything about me because I'm in this deep pain. But genuine love, and even there are cases of human love not ending. Ruth has her own loss, but she sets that aside for the good of Naomi here. And she's in deep pain. There is a, another uh, key principle here, and that is this. In transition, God is doing something else. Yes, they've entered into the transition, but God is doing a needed work. You might say, well, what's needed? There's been death. There's been loss. In fact, when we enter into the needed phase, we don't think it's needed at all. In fact, we think it's a mistake. It's like a bad dream. <laughs> but God says there's something needed in the process if we understand that. And so God is in the process of working in Naomi's life, in Ruth, and the entire families. And now we see that they return back to the land. It says, so when the two of them, verse 19, continued on their journey, when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Naomi returns. Isn't it interesting? There's joy and excitement when she comes back after years away from her homeland. This is where she was born and raised, where God intended for them to live and settle and die was right here. And there's excitement in the people. And they come back to Bethlehem. How many have heard of Bethlehem? Yeah, we think about it at Christmas time. But what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. Isn't it interesting? They left in a time of famine. And they come back to their hometown, the house of bread, which is very interesting because the scriptures also let us know something is going on there. But in verse 21, we begin to see that again, Naomi is in deep pain. She says to the women, don't call me Naomi. What does Naomi mean, by the way? Pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. She says, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. It's the name Mary. It's the name Miriam. And uh, she says, for the, notice this, the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when, ever, when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? And so she is deeply feeling her pain. And she had told her daughters earlier, things are far more bitter for me, back in verse 13, than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now what is she talking about? Naomi's in deep pain and out comes all of her hurt. It's directed at God himself. So what is going on behind the scenes in her life? Well, first of all, it's pretty clear in Scripture that God intended for his people to stay in the promised land, which was Israel. Now we know that Abraham snuck back down to Egypt for a time when there was famine. And there are other cases of those who, who did that. But never is that something that God approves of or says is the best thing to do. And also, according to the Scriptures, um, was it okay to marry foreign women? It's very clear they were not to marry Canaanite women. However, Ruth was a Moabitess. And the law specifically, didn't say specifically you couldn't marry a Moabitess or an a Moabite or an Amorite or a stalagmite or a stalactite or a termite. <laughs> but, but so we don't really know. However, it's very clear in Scripture from her pain and everything else around it that this was not God's best plan. To move away and marry people from a, a foreign culture with foreign gods, which is the real problem there. There are hints this was not God's best plan. And yet in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the loss, and the disappointment in this transition, something else happens. Look at verse 22. It also reveals that God is gracious. It doesn't look like much, but notice what it says. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. What's that called, folks? 
Doesn't seem like a big deal. So what? They're at harvest time. Well, if you weren't raised in an agrarian society, it wouldn't be. But if I were to say the economy is going to be booming again, would that kind of wake you up a little bit? The economy is booming. There's a harvest. That's what that's about. And they come back from their loss and their pain into this booming economy that they haven't seen for a long time. And so God is working behind the scenes here. And we begin to see that God himself is wooing Naomi back to himself in all of her bitterness. Does God do that kind of thing? Yeah, he does. That's the kind of thing he does. But we also see that she's now beginning to enter into the second stage of the transition. And what is that? The second stage of the transition is evaluation. What do we mean? Well, whether we want to or not, there's something about loss, there's something about the time of transition that we begin to ask questions. What's going on? Why is this happening to me? You know, why is the phone ringing? Uh, you know, so we begin to ask these, these natural questions that, that come upon our way. What is happening? And we'll also understand something here that in the time of transition, most of the time in transition, and by the way, eventually people come out of it, and this works this way. It starts going this way and this way. Most of the time is spent here below the waterline where no one else can see it. But God is doing a work inside of us during the transition time. Talked to someone this morning who had, who had just moved here some months ago. And they said, boy, we're definitely, we're in, we're in some time of transition. So even a move can do that. But what do you do in those transition times when you don't know what to do? Well, chapter 2, the story helps us along the way. And notice it begins, it says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. We begin to see, and it'll pick up in a moment, God is at work behind the scenes, whether we know it or not. We may have had loss, we may have had difficulty, we may be in problems right now, it doesn't matter. God's at work behind the scenes, and that's what this is about. And so... God's at work, but notice something in verse 2. It says, One day Ruth, the Moabite, said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. And as you know, that one of the laws was that they were to leave the corners of the field for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and, and gleaning to have, so they have something to eat. Even if it's your own field, that was the way God took care of his people. And so this is what she's talking about. Let me go out and do some gleaning. Uh, to help take care of us and so that we can live again. And so she initiates to care for her mother-in-law. So when you don't know, what, know, don't know what to do, there's a time of confusion, a kind of pain, what do you do? Well, Ruth demonstrates, take a step of responsibility. Take a step of what's right, and if all you know is just the next one that is going to be responsible to help people. Not just look out for me, but what's best for those around me. And that's exactly what this young foreign woman does. She takes a step to help her mother-in-law. Let me ask a question here. When you take a step of responsibility, what do you think you discover? Without knowing it, you're stepping into discovering what God's doing. Sometimes he says, I'm doing all kinds of things, but I'm not going to reveal it until you take another step in this direction. That's why he says take a step. It's called a step of faith. Are we willing to do it? Are we just going to sit back in the safe zone and say, well, I want to see it happen first? God doesn't operate that way. People of faith step out first, and then they discover what God is doing. And then God supplies when we've taken the steps that he's asked us to. And this is what Ruth does. Let me ask you this question. What, is, what does it mean uh, for when a person has good fortune? You know, people on the street would say, well, it's just, you know, they have good luck. You know, and as Christians, we dress it up a little and say, well, they had good fortune. What is that all about? What it's really talking about is the sovereignty of God. He's in control. As we're going to see, nothing comes into our life that isn't father filtered first, even the pain. He's aware he's in control and he doesn't quit working just because we hurt. And so Ruth steps out and now we begin to discover, notice some of the, the uh, I should say, coincidences that follow. So Naomi says, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. As it happened, underline that, just a happening, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. How many think that's a coincidence? How many think it's God working behind the scenes? 
Yeah, I think so. And that's why it's all the way through is this way. And so this coincidence, she steps out and finds herself um, in the, the, the property of Elimelech. And so here's the principle as well. When you don't, don't know what to do and you take a step of responsibility, the next thing you want to do is start looking for God's provision. Be on the lookout. Just as they were to listen to our losses, what are our losses saying to us in chapter 1? You ever thought about that? What are your losses saying to you? They're saying something. And here at the same time, now we begin to look for God's provision, even though we have been through great loss. It's interesting because the next scene shows, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. That's just how your boss greets you every morning, right? When you come into work. <laughs> the Lord be with you, right? How many get that? No. It worked. And then they respond back to him. Um, uh, the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. And so here's a man that sounds like maybe you'd want to work for. He's rich. He's a relative of Naomi. And notice the next verse says, Then Boaz asked the foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? He notices her right away. That's what he said. She was probably cute. Who knows what? But certainly she was not around there. And he, he knew that, that she was a new person. And he begins to ask about her. And he gets an update from the foreman. He says, So... She is the young woman from Moab who came back from Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. And just a moment, Boaz is going to go over and talk to her because there's things behind the scenes that you and I may not know that's going on right here at the moment. And what we're going to see is that his basically reaching out to her right away is stepping in to probably stop what some scholars think was sexual harassment. There's the implication she'd been gleaning all day. She was getting ready to go because when she stopped to go get a drink, the young workers were there and started to, you know, hit on her a little bit. And so Boaz comes and he steps into this situation and he puts an end to that. And verse 10 lets us know she begins to thank him. Look at this. See, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? And right before that, he tells her, I want you to stay here with my gleaners. Go with the young women. We'll make sure the young men don't harass you. You'll have plenty to drink. You're going to be okay. So he steps in to make sure that she's cared for. And she, in great gratitude, falls before him. You know why? Because she's a foreigner. She has no right. She doesn't know anyone. She is totally uh, out of her element. Starting tomorrow morning, we become foreigners. You know, when you leave the country, and many of you who travel around the world know what that's like. You go into another country. I don't care how idyllic and how wonderful it is. You're a foreigner. The rules are different. They play the game differently where they are than we do here. And so you know some of what that's like. And you know that you're at the mercy of the goodness of the people that are there. And this is where Ruth finds herself in that situation. But what's amazing is look at the next two verses. Because Boaz responds, or yes, I know, he says. He says, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard about how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. Then look at this. He blesses her. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, he saw as a spiritual move on the behalf of, of Ruth, reward you fully for what you have done. He blesses her. He actually prays over here. What he doesn't realize, he's going to be part of the answer to that prayer. He just doesn't know it yet. So he blesses her. And gives her great encouragement. You know, it helps us also to understand that, uh, in this case, that we need to recognize integrity rewards. What do I mean by that? Integrity is its own reward, folks. People who live with integrity discover the amazing support of God in many different ways. And so, this woman of integrity, as we're going to see, is noticed by a man who appears to be a man of integrity. Now, is this an automatic situation? I mean, well, certainly he was going to be nice to her. What if she'd gone into a different field? I mean, could not Boaz, if he'd wanted to set her up to take advantage of her? He could have. So apparently right now, at this point, he does not. So she's been rewarded for her integrity. The possessor of integrity knows its reward. So at the end of this scene, uh, she, she takes a bunch of the grain home. She reports back to Naomi, tell her the good news. And Naomi shares in the joy of Naomi. Question, what do people say about you and me 
as far as our, our identity, our reputation? What have they seen in us? Who have they seen us sacrifice for, for the good and for the benefit of another person? What are we known for where we work and where we live? What is our reputation? This is simply a young woman who gave herself away for her mother-in-law. And guess what? It became known to people who pay attention to those kinds of things. What would they say about us? Who have we sacrificed for? And at the same time, where has God shown you his favor? And so he tells the workers, Boaz does, to, to leave some extra grain around for, for, for Ruth. And when she gets home and begins to tell her mother-in-law about the situation, Naomi reinterprets what has just happened. She says, he is one of our relatives. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's close to us. And so for the first time, we begin to hear that Naomi has some, some life that's beginning to, to begin to flow back into her. And so when we move into the second area of evaluation, and we're asking questions, not only has God done a, need, a needed work, God does a deeper work. Things are beginning to happen inside of Naomi again. God's doing a deeper work, and he always does that. And what he begins to do is do some reviving inside of her. And she comes to life a little bit. And Naomi begins to anticipate some future blessing from God. And we begin to see hope in her life. By the way, folks, what does hope do in someone's life? What if it's removed? You've heard the old adage, you can live, uh, you know, three days without water. I don't know, a week without, or actually more than that. You can live 40 days plus without food. And you can even live a few minutes without air, but you can't live at all without hope. But when hope is restored to the heart, it's life-altering. And so Naomi, who's been through so much, she's lost so much, begins to see God work in new ways. By the way, what have you said is over? What have you said, I've lost it, it's, it's over, there's been, it's bleak in my future? Whenever we start saying those things, God, it's over, it's lost, why even try? You know what God says? God always says, oh, really? Remember that? We call it the oh, really factor. Oh, really? So you've just locked me up and says nothing good can happen because you've lost something. It looks bleak, right? And God says, well, what about me? What do you think I can do? Here's why we give up on God. Because we want God to give back to us the very thing that we lost and we said we can't live without it. We can't go on. I mean, God, you took that. That's what I want. I don't want anything else. I want that. And God's saying, okay. And folks, unfortunately, I have seen people and it breaks your heart who will never recover because that's the way they live. And when we do that, you know what we do? We limit God's creativity. He says, do you see what I'm doing over here? Have you seen all the other colors that I have? He says, I want to do something new. Will you give me an opportunity? And we begin to discover that here, Naomi is getting an indication that God is wanting to do a deeper work in here. And he has other uh, experiences of wonder and we begin to say God how did you do that it felt like it was all over and yet life is coming back I don't know how you did that and he says well that's who I am and the deeper work in us is an indication we're beginning to move and what is the deeper work it's where we begin to see God and we want him we want him even more than what we've lost that's how you know you're entering into a deeper work because he becomes our treasure instead of the things that were our treasure that we have lost or have had to let go. He's the satisfaction that we're looking for, just as our song sang earlier this morning. And yet, it says that not only has the barley harvest passed, and now there's the wheat harvest. And, and uh, Ruth has gone through both of those, and, and they're, they're well fed. In fact, uh, some scholars say they probably have a whole year's supply of food, which is unbelievable for two widows. But something else is going on here. Nothing has changed as far as Naomi's widowhood or Ruth's widowhood. And that may not make a big deal to us, but in that culture, as we said earlier, you don't have a future if there's not a family to take care of you. You know, you don't have 401ks. And Social Security uh, didn't work then. It doesn't, well, I shouldn't say now. But uh, there was a problem here, and they're really not prepared for the future. And so we begin to see that Naomi now begins to take action on behalf of her daughter-in-law. She's returned and restored enough to take action for Ruth, who lets her. 
You see, folks, when you and I begin to release our future, beginning in chapter 3, God begins to go to work. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. And we see that she tells uh, Ruth, she says, tonight's the night of the harvest. And they're down at the threshing floor. So what I want you to do is, you know, dress up, put on some perfume. And I want you to go down the threshing floor because Boaz will be there, the kinsman redeemer. Now, to a Western audience, this sounds a little, uh, you know, a little seedy to begin with. But stay with the story. She says, go down there. And after they've had their victory celebration harvest dinner, and they've had a little bit to eat and drink. And he says, and then they go to sleep. She says, go down and lay at Boaz's feet, uncover his feet. Now, you know, we've been talking about like the laws of Leverite marriage. And we've talked about all these customs that they had. And uh, we're going to see that there's a new law that's about to go in, into practice here. It's called the law of, the Hebrew word is the law of playing footsie. <laughs> Some of you scholars picked up on that. Because she's to lay at his feet, okay, here in the, in, the, in the middle of the night. And she says, then what happens, he'll wake up and he will tell you what to do. And so here's Ruth. She agrees to do this. Now, obviously, this is some kind of custom that we don't even understand today, but that's what she does. And when you begin to think about it, she puts herself at the mercy of her mother-in-law's advice. You know, dress up, go down there at the middle of the night, you know, all this, and lay yourself at the feet of a man. Does that sound a little uh, different? Do <laughs> you think there's any risk involved in this kind of thing? Or this is a nice story. This, everything worked out happily ever after. Yes, obviously. How safe is this? Is this a slam dunk? Well, Ruth agrees to do the whole thing. And um, as we'll see in a moment, before we get there, is this a slam dunk that everything is going to work out? It all depends 99% now on how Boaz responds to the situation. What if underneath this veneer of a noble man lies the heart of a dirty old man who's had a little too much to drink, and decides to take advantage of this young foreign woman. You say, well, the story doesn't say that happened. I know, but was that a possibility? And even if not, what if he wakes up and he says, you know what? Because this is actually, this custom is a marriage proposal. That doesn't make sense to us. But the law of Leverite marriage that I told you about before, the family had the right to claim to be married from the family member that would take care of them. So this was simply something provided for by God. It's not like our custom today. But what if he said, you know what, I just don't want to be involved in this marriage thing. I'm, I'm a little too old and I just want to take care of a family. That could have happened too. There was at least the possibility of rejection. And yet Ruth takes the counsel of her mother-in-law and she goes through with this whole plan. She's risking her future on her submission to her mother-in-law's scheme. And so Boaz wakes up, the scripture tells us, and there's someone at his feet. <laughs> and he says, who are you? Well, now, first of all, it's dark, folks. He didn't have his, uh, uh, his, his uh, iPhone, so he couldn't hit the little light on it and see who it was, you know. And, and he says, who are you? And she identifies herself as Ruth the Moabitess. And um, he, he certainly knows who she is by this time as she begins to identify herself. Now, I need to say, too, there are those skeptics who want to make more that's here. They want to make it some type of uh, sexual provocation and saying, you know, the, the Bible's not saying it, but who knows what kind of hanky-pank went on. I have happened to believe as we look at this, we'll see, you know, this is what Hollywood would have done with it, would have exploited it. We'll see it's very different than that. And notice the response of Boaz after he wakes up. He says this, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. God opens doors. But we also notice here, this whole idea of integrity, once again, begins to, to rise up. And it simply says this. This whole response by Boaz is amazing to a Western audience. Nobody takes advantage of each other. There's nothing seeing here. In fact, what we see is that virtue attracts more virtue. This virtuous young woman has been drawn to a virtuous man. And what this really is all about, folks, is what we call an integrity check. Did you know that every day you and I go through integrity checks from God? We may not realize that, but when no one else is looking, what happens in our thoughts, in our choices? 
and how we respond to people and do we do it God's way or our own, God wants to see who he can trust and who he can expand their future through these integrity checks. And this couple wins the integrity check. They win it in this particular situation by doing what God wants. God is checking us out. By the way, how do we handle those compromising situations? And where we are either promoted by God because we resist them, or we cave in and we begin to plateau, or actually what happens is compromise will cause us to crash and burn eventually. And this is a test. We were at this banquet last night, and um, one of the things that um, um, uh, amazed me was uh, one of the couples was there. They do these, this orality culture, do, uh, teaching around the world, telling the stories of the Bible. And we were talking about the leadership we do, and he says, well, the number one thing we talk about is integrity. Well, obviously, that's one of the most important things because all around the world, there's compromise in all leadership, all, all uh, countries, corporations, and even churches, unfortunately. There's too much of that. And so virtue meets virtue. There's something, too, about knowing that when we begin to follow God and we release our future, he opens doors. I was last night at the, uh, at the banquet, uh, both Patricia and I spoke for a short time. They asked us to as, a, as a part of GTN. And uh, six years ago when we left the church that we were doing, and Patricia had a very um, large role in celebration arts and worship that she'd done for years, she decided to say, well, you know, hey, I, this probably isn't what I, my first pick, but I'm, I'll go with you. And, and some of you have heard her tell that story. And then last night watching what's happened over a period of six years as God is using her not only around the world and she's writing curriculum. There will be 15 sisters conferences next year in, in India. And, and uh, also the opportunities that are coming for her to speak. And, you know, when, when she spoke, after, people just mobbed her last night because they want to hear the stories about women around the world. And I'm left holding the baggage over there. They'd rather hear her than me. But the point is that God opens doors. And then also we begin to see virtue attracts virtue along the way. But there's something else in this whole situation. As now we begin to move into another phase. And this is the phase that we call alignment. What does that mean? Bill Berry spoke to our men's summit on Friday morning. And he talked that we're talking about our life mission and men's purpose, and, and how God works. And he talks about God aligning things. Not only as, as God begins to, to align with what he wants, the work that he is doing is what we call a refining work. God begins to refine the heart, the mind, where now we begin to say that our will becomes more of what he wants. And we begin to say, God, this is a, uh, uh, where, where we begin to see these characters, all three of them, have begun to take a step to sacrifice for one another. Ruth has obviously sacrificed for her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she followed her. And then Naomi takes a step saying, my daughter-in-law is going to be without a husband unless I do something. And so she, she takes a step of action for her daughter-in-law. And as we'll see, Boaz now has accepted the fact that he will become, if he can work it out, the husband of Ruth. And all of them have given up something for the good of another. And this is the, the idea of God's doing a refining work, giving them a heart to care for one another. How many of you remember O. Henry's famous story, the, the, the little novel he wrote called The Gift of the Magi that we read at Christmas? Some of you know that. It's the story of a young couple. They were very poor. It's in the early 1900s. And it comes Christmas time, and they're so poor they can't afford Christmas gifts for each other. And each one begins to think, what can I do? And the young man has a, a watch, a golden watch, that's been passed down to his, into his family to him as the inheritor of it. And he's proud of that. And his wife decides, she sees a gold chain in an apartment store that goes with the watch, and she wants to buy that for him. Now picture, this is early 1900s, not today. Nobody wants a gold chain today, okay? And she has this beautiful, long, flowing hair that goes down below her waist, and it, it, everyone talks about her hair. And he sees these two combs. Remember when women put combs in their hair? That, well, that was before our time, but they did. They put these beautiful combs and had an, uh, all these little gems and googly sparkles or whatever they had on them. And um, that's the scientific name for those. <laughs> and, and so he saw those and he knew how much she wanted him. And so Christmas Eve comes and they both come in and they want to present their gifts to each other. And he noticed she's wearing a scarf. And so first she hands him the gift and he opens the box and there's this beautiful gold chain. He thinks, where did you get the money for that? And he says, thank you so much. And um, then she opens her present, and there are the, the beautiful combs. Well, where did you get the money for that? 
Well, you see, he took his gold watch and he sold it to buy her the combs. And she had her hair cut off that he loved so much and sold it in order to buy him the chain. That makes a nice little story, doesn't it? Well, this is more than that here. This is three people sacrificing for one another. And what we also discover here is this is a picture of Hesed. This is God's loyal love of people demonstrating to him how he loves us. You know where it comes from? The word Hesed, that means loyal love, comes from the stork. I've been in Israel, watched storks come up from Africa and fly as they go all up to Europe. And if some of you have seen pictures of storks you know, in Europe. They're, like, they're the ones that, that bring babies you know, on their bill. And where does that come from? There's something to it because in all of animal kingdom, did you know the stork is the most loyal to its offspring? They will build its nest, these huge nests, these are big storks, in the top of trees or even in, in the, when, when you see them in Europe, they build them in the chimneys in the top of the roofs where nothing can harm them. And the stork will fight to the death to protect their young. That's how God loves you and me. And this is the picture of what's going on here. The loyal love here of human love toward one another. And all three are now aligned with God's purposes. And by the way, the way transitions work in your life is that it doesn't just where we kind of start here and we go all the way around live happily ever after. Sometimes in this lower phase, we swing back and forth. We can go back this way and sometimes we have to go back and then until God begins to move us in this direction into the final phase. So here we begin to see this alignment of caring more for the other than even themselves. But there's still one more hurdle. While Boaz agrees to marry Ruth, the Bible tells us in chapter 4 that there's actually another relative who has first rights or refusal. And so it says that he leaves, and early the next morning he goes to the city gates, and he's waiting there. They call the elders of the city, and here comes this other relative. And he sits down, and he says, hey... Um, I was going to buy the property of Elimelech, and, but you have the first right of refusal. Do you want the property? And he says, I sure do. It sounds like a good deal to me. Because Ruth couldn't afford it. Her, Naomi couldn't afford it herself, but a relative could buy it. He says, oh, there's one other thing. If you buy it, you also, uh, there is the widow, Ruth the Moabitess, that you need to marry in order to, to, to get the inheritance. Because that's, again, what the law provided. He says, well, I could tell you what, not so fast. He said, that would kind of mess with my future, my 401ks, the inheritance of my family. No, you go ahead and you marry her and you can redeem the land. Then the Bible says there's a great celebration after this. People start high-fiving one another. They finish it by a, a custom that some of you know. And they, they seal the deal with what we call the law of sandals. And that's not the place you visit, uh, the vacation spot. This is something different. Uh, this is where you take off your shoe. And you swap it with the other guy. And it's a sign that this is a covenant that won't be broken. And we agree with this stamp of approval. And so the people cheer. It says they give the blessings. And they begin to dance. And notice what it says here. It says, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants like this young woman. Who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. And so the people are cheering here. And what I didn't, we don't have time this morning, but if you go back and read in, in Genesis chapter 38, the story of Judah and, and Tamar is incredibly seedy, <laughs> folks. It's a little R-rated and beyond there. Uh, I'm sure some of you will run right out and read it today because I said that. <laughs> but it begins to show God's grace who works even in the ancestors and all that he's doing to bring his great plan to, prompt, to, to fulfill. But we also see something else going on in this situation. And that is, we begin to see that not only does God do a refining work, but God is going to do a greater work, which will show up in a moment. And the greater work is that he begins to give a new sense of direction. See, God takes us through a transition. And then direction comes from him to say, I'm going to take you to new places. And we'll see in a moment what's left behind with a new direction is not the end of faith. It's actually the beginning of a whole new phase and work of faith. And so God is working here. And what he said is that in their pain and their loss and their confusion and uncertainty, they have yielded to God and he prevails. And notice what the scripture says here as they begin to go ahead and, and, and give praise. It says, so 
Uh, Ruth took Boaz home, slept with her. She became his wife and became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. The women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law, look at this, who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Seven sons was the expression of the ultimate gift a woman could have from God. And she says, this daughter-in-law has been better to you than any seven sons could be. And then notice what it says. Naomi took care of the baby and cuddled him to, to, uh, as if it were her own. And she cared for him. The neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. She's the grandmother. And so what we begin to see is that God is doing now something even greater. That there's a healing that follows a yielding. All the pain they have been through. There's a healing that goes on in Naomi's life, not to mention Ruth's. And Boaz doesn't mention how his is happening here. But a man who's been obviously single for a long time, God is doing something special in his life as well. And Ruth, uh, Naomi, what could be better than having the pure joy of a grandson? Uh, Bill Heatley wanted me to ask, does this mean now that uh, they had a lot more baby Ruths after this? So I told him I didn't mention that in the first service. I almost did in this one. Probably shouldn't have. But um, there's a final step here. We see that yielding also expands God's kingdom. Notice the last verse, verse 17 of chapter 4. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. What they're saying here, this little story that's about a harvest time and people living in, in the time of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and a young Moabitess woman and her, loses her husband and she goes to live with her mother-in-law and there's harvest and all these things. That What's it all about? God, there's something much bigger than all of them. That is, the line of the Messiah who would be the redeemer of the world was born from this union. Of people who gave up their own future, sacrificed their own best for the good of other God says, I'm going to work there. And you know what? The hope of the world came not just for them, but to live in our lives as well. Now, folks, this is what it says. Behind the scenes, in all these coincidences, is a divine drama. And what God is working out is on a bigger stage than you and I can see. And we are characters in a divine chess game that he is moving to carry out his purposes. Even if I don't know anything about it, and even if it doesn't take place for three generations, that's who you, that's who I am in the kingdom of God. Have you ever said, God... Help me do it your way. I don't understand all this. I don't know what all that it means. And even the greatest biblical scholars don't know all that it means. God says, will you trust me? Will you let me work? You know, if you go back, did you realize in the line of the Messiah, in the genealogies of Christ, there are four women who are mentioned. The first is Tamar. We mentioned earlier. She was a prostitute. The second is Rahab. She was a prostitute. The third was Ruth, this young woman of amazing virtue. But she's a foreigner. In fact, Tamar was a foreigner. Rahab was a foreigner. And then Bathsheba, an adulteress. That's who's in the line of Christ. And yet God shows his great grace and his mercy by using their lives, taking broken pieces, putting them all back together for his honor, for his glory. It says this as well. He is hope. You are never without hope because hope is a person. And you spell hope J. E-S-U-S. If Jesus lives in you, you are never without hope. You might lose your life, but you won't lose him. And there's something else that happens now. What God does is that the final phase of all this is that life isn't over. We may go through this cycle many times. But always here on the other side of this is a new faith challenge. The book ends here, but God's faith challenges to you and I do not end. We now get to trust him in the new adventure for where he wants to take us to expand his kingdom. Are we willing to go? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this amazing short story, a book of coincidences that really reveals your heart for us, your people. Let me ask you this morning, where do you see yourself in this cycle, if on there at all? Are you in transition? 
Is God wanting to do a needed work in you? Where's the pain? It's not a mistake. Yes, we make bad choices. And yet he can use even that. Will you say, God, I want to understand and cooperate with you in the deeper work you're doing in my life. And will you allow me, I want you to refine me so that I align with your purposes. Can you pray that? Because folks, if not, then we're really pretty much living on our own. Is there a risk of faith in that? Sure. But the greater risk is to continue to live our own way and miss the power. Are you listening to what God is saying in your losses? At the same time, are you looking for his provision? As he does the refining work, can you say, God, do a greater work in me? Will you use my life for you and your kingdom? As we come across the, the Christmas season, the moment we're going to see a, a video of Operation Christmas Child, we can help. But also, how about right here in the Agora area? Who are our friends, loved ones, and neighbors who are pre-Christians? They don't know Jesus. Will you pray for them for this Christmas? Will you say, God, help me to serve them? Who could you invite this Christmas season? The Christmas cafe or Christmas Eve services or the series we'll be doing. Or just have them over to your house. God, use my life. Use our lives together. Thank you, Father, for your great work. We don't understand it all, but we thank you for your graciousness and your goodness to us. And I pray that as a church, as your people, that you would use our lives this Christmas season to embrace all that you have for us and to impact the people around us. Thank you, Father, for working in such amazing ways all around us. Help us to realize it and recognize it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.